we're making our way uh, through Paul's letter to the Romans, today we look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. It's found on page 1754. 1754. Let's pray together as we hear God's word, prepare to hear God's word. Lord God, as your church, we're grateful that you give us your word. That your word guides us, directs us, instructs us, teaches us, informs us, encourages us, challenges us, shapes us, so that we can be the church you want us to be. That we can be your people living the new life of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that your word would come to us this morning, encounter us, and that we would see Jesus, and have a desire to be more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin, and it becomes slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
W.H. Auden uh, wrote a poem called, for the time being, a Christmas oratorio. And in this poem, King Herod responds to the Magi's news of the Savior's birth and the grace and forgiveness that it brings. And Herod says, Every crook will argue, I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them, really the world is admirably arranged. Paul must have bumped into this type of argument. If God loves us so much, if God's rescued us from from all that's gone horribly wrong, if God's free grace reaches down to where we are, if we're justified by grace through faith without works, then why not carry on as before? Sin boldly. Let grace abound. Admirable arrangement. Paul doesn't buy it. By the power of the gospel, he says, we have a new status with God. By the power of the gospel, we've been transformed through and through. Been transformed in character and in life because of God's reign of grace. And our hearts are redirected away from sin and toward life with God. Paul begins with baptism. Remember your baptism. Baptism means we're no longer a part of the old humanity. That old Adam that Paul talked about in chapter 5. Baptism gives a whole new meaning to our lives. It's in the sin and the death, in the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We've died to sin. It's not a matter of overcoming some individual sins. No, what Paul has in mind is being released from captivity to the power of sin. That's sin with a capital S. In a manner of speaking, Paul is retelling his own version of the Exodus story. The second book of the Bible, Exodus, tells us the story. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And they cried out to God. God heard their laments. God had compassion on their misery. And God sent Moses to bring them out. Moses would lead them to freedom. He'd lead them to the promised land. On their way, they passed through the Red Sea. It was a boundary moment. When they passed through the waters, they left behind the land of slavery. And they discovered a new freedom. God even gave them His law at Mount Sinai to guide them in this new life. True, they wandered around in the desert longer than expected. But God never failed to lead them by His own presence, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire until they entered the land that had been given them as an inheritance. This well-known story is being retold by Paul in Romans chapter 6. As N.T. Wright describes it, Christians come through the water of baptism, think Red Sea, and they leave behind the land of slavery to sin, think Egypt, and enter a new freedom. Uh, like setting off for the promised land. 
What we'll discover, actually, is that Romans 7 then will wrestle with the question of the impact of the law in Mount Sinai on our lives. And then Romans 8 will describe the Christian life in terms of God leading his people home to an inheritance which, as Paul says, turns out to be the whole new creation redeemed. But here, what Paul wants to remind us of is what God has accomplished In Jesus, God fulfills his promises to Abraham. God promised Abraham that after a period of slavery, he would lead Israel out to a new home in their own land. Romans 6 through 8 shows us the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant promise to Abraham. Further, Jews in Paul's day were expecting a new exodus. They figured God would free Israel from oppression. Paul just paints a different picture of, of this expectation. They don't get political freedom from Rome. They get the ultimate freedom. God frees the cosmos from sin, corruption, and death. And Paul highlights that what God has done through Jesus the Messiah truly fulfills all the hopes of Israel. Israel's hopes are not left behind as if that was a different time and place. God doesn't move in a new direction. God continues on through. As N.T. Wright notes, the salvation which God has accomplished in the Messiah, the salvation which he will complete by the Spirit, is the goal of all that has gone before. Baptism points us in this direction. Baptisms means we die with the Messiah and we're raised with him into a new life. As Paul says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Dying and rising. It's a graphic image. Typically we sprinkle on the head of an infant or an an adult. It just doesn't capture the image. Maybe it would be better if we had a tank so that infants and adults could be plunged deep under the water and maybe held there for a while so that they know they're dying. One author tells of a Latin American experience. As the baptism was about to take place, a father carried a child's coffin down the aisle, followed by a mother with a bucket of water, and then came the priest carrying the sleeping infant. When they reached the front, the father placed the coffin on the altar. The mother poured the water into the coffin, and the priest bathed the child with oil. And then, as the priest sang softly to the infant, he lowered the baby into the coffin, immersed the child, head and all, into the water, and exclaimed, I kill you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the parents gathered and the whole congregation said, Amen! And then the priest lifted the child out high into the air for all to see, and he declared, And I resurrect you that you might love and serve the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. It's one of Paul's central beliefs. Since Jesus the Messiah represents his people, we can say that what is true of him is true of us. Notice Paul's language. He speaks of being baptized 
into Christ, being buried with Him. People come into the Messiah or are being in the Messiah or things happen to them with the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. All the people are represented in him. That's why Paul can say, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because of Easter, the Messiah Jesus is alive with a life that death cannot touch. He's not like Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or anyone else who's talked about in scriptures of being raised from death to life. They would all die again. For we know, says Paul, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. See, Jesus is different. He went through death and came out the other side with a new bodily life that death cannot touch. Death no longer has mastery over him. And because by baptism we are in the Messiah, we're right there with him in this new life. Now if we died with Christ, says Paul, we believe we will also live with him. Now we don't fully have this new life yet. I mean, we often don't feel like resurrection people. Our bodies crumble and we get sick. Joints need replacement. Organs transplant. But we will certainly receive this new life. In fact, Romans chapter 8 will show us that certain future. But here's the amazing truth of our baptism. We stand on resurrection ground. No longer in Adam. We're in the Messiah. He died and is now alive forevermore. Paul says, do the math. I mean, he uses a bookkeeping image here. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count it. Calculate it, says Paul. Run the numbers. Add it all up. You're not being asked to believe the impossible. Jesus really represents us in his death and resurrection. And we are the baptized and believing members of Jesus' people who are in the Messiah. Remember your baptism. You're in Christ. Your baptism is into his death. And in him, you are raised from death to new life. What's true of him is true of us. So live your new life. Live your baptism. It's not enough to simply be baptized. Paul wants us to recognize that since we've been raised with Christ, we need to keep the rhythm going. It should be evident in our lives that we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we let resentment die and we bring forgiveness to life. We let hatred die and let love arise. We let unkindness die and we bring alive God's grace. We let greed die so that gratitude and generosity can be alive. We let payback die so that peace can come to life. See, there are basically two types of humanity. Those who are in Adam and those in the Messiah. You're either a slave in the land of Egypt or you're a slave to God living in anticipation of life in the promised land. 
As Bob Dylan once put it, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you've got to serve somebody. Sometimes we act as if the old humanity is in charge of us. I mean, we might even say when we do something wrong, oh, that's just the old Adam at work in me. Paul wants us to know that's impossible. The old humanity was crucified with Jesus. That was a life bound up in sin. That was a life of slavery. Once you were dead, but you can no longer be enslaved in that way. See, Paul is clear. For sin shall no longer be your master. Don't let any voices convince you that you're stuck in sin. It's simply not true. You might still sin, but it's not a power over you in life. As Christians, we have a new master. Often we'll talk about inviting Jesus into our lives or into our hearts. I wonder sometimes if we've got it backwards. Jesus doesn't want to be in your life because your life without him is a mess. What Jesus wants to do is call you into his life. In another letter, Paul wrote, For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, we're under new ownership. We have a change in masters. There's a new power at work in our lives. No more excusing ourselves. No more trying to serve two masters. God calls us to this total commitment. We can't straddle the fence between our desires and Christ's desire for us. There's a Haitian parable that speaks to the commitment we're called to. A man wanted to sell his house and another man wanted very badly to buy it, but he couldn't afford the full price. He simply was too poor. And so they bargained back and forth and finally the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price. But he had one stipulation that he could retain ownership of one peg located just over the front door. And so the deal was struck. A few years later, the original owner wanted to buy the house back. The new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out and he found the carcass of a dead dog and he hung it from the peg that he still owned. And the house soon became unlivable. And the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the peg. See, Paul is clear. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Don't let sin have the power, not even the tiny peg of presence in your life. Paul envisions the various parts of our lives as implements either for God's service or to be used in service of sin. Every part of us, our limbs, our organs, our mind, our memory, our imagination, our emotions, all were meant to be used for God's purposes or else they're trapped in sin. We're to live our baptism. We've come through the river and out the other side. We've died and now been raised to new life. Every part of us. See, if a non-Christian sins, they're acting in accordance with their identity. They're being true to who they are. We expect sin 
from them. But if you, as someone united with Christ, if you sin, you violate your identity. If as a Christian you sin, you fail to live the new person you are in Christ. You don't realize who you are. You've forgotten what Christ has done for you. Paul says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey. Whether slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And that word righteousness means God putting the world right. God uses us and our obedience in the ongoing job of putting things right in the world. It's acting in justice for the poor. It's alleviating hunger and disease. It's caring for the environment. It's refusing to ridicule or bully others. By our lives and actions, we demonstrate that this world matters. That's the message of Jesus' resurrection. That the injustices and the pains of the present world are addressed with our message. That healing and justice and love have one. When we live our baptism, when we live out the new life we have in Christ, then we announce good news to the world. We're part of the work of God's kingdom, bringing the victory of Jesus over all violence, over all degradation, over all injustice. That's not about obeying some law. That's about having a new heart orientation. Paul notes, thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Obey from your heart. Paul has this whole vision of being transformed from within. A longing arises in us that deep down inside we want to live in line with the community of faith to which we now belong. We want to live the resurrection life, the life of the age to come right here in the present. Pastor Tim Keller once pointed to the power of this resurrection life. He tells the story of a, a Christian who was visiting Italy and there was a grave of a man who had died centuries earlier. This man was an unbeliever and committed against, completely against Christianity, adamant that he did not want to be part of any resurrection. So when the man died, this unbeliever, when he died, had this huge stone slab placed over his grave so he wouldn't be raised from the dead. And, and then he had insignias put all over the slab. I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. However there must have been an acorn that was buried with him in the grave. And a hundred years later, this acorn had grown up through the grave, split the slab, and was now a tall, towering oak tree. And when the Christians saw this, he concluded, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of such magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? When you believe Jesus enters your life, His power dwells in you. His resurrection power, the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in your life.
I mean, think about it. What immovable slabs are in your life? You might have bitterness. Maybe insecurity is plaguing you. Perhaps you have great fear. Or you're filled with self-doubt. Paul addresses all of these obstacles. But now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. That is, what he means by that phrase eternal life is the life of the age to come. Now, that's not sitting on clouds playing harps. We don't get some existence that's outside of time and space and matter. No, what he has in mind is that the wickedness of this present age is met with God's triumph that will happen at the last age. That the injustices and the pains of the present world are healed. And that love will win the day. And what he means is it happens now and leads into the later. Our Christian life isn't a matter of following a few moral rules. We're not a people who should be accused of living strange, outdated beliefs and practices. No, we live in the light of God's future, the future that meets us in Jesus Christ and His resurrection. We died and rose with Christ when He did. And we do it again in our baptism. And we do it again and again and again when we live our baptism, dying to the ways of our old self and bringing to life the ways of our resurrected selves. That's the power of Christ's resurrected life alive in us. Dead to sin, alive to God. It's right there in our baptism. We're baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it makes all the difference in identifying who we are. Remember your baptism. You're not in Adam. You are in Christ. And we spend our lives living out the truth of our baptism. We're under new ownership. God's resurrection powers at work in us. And we offer every part of who we are, heart, soul, mind, strength, in everything we do to live the new life that we have in Christ. Let's pray together. God, what an unbelievable status you give us in Christ. An unbelievable identity of who we are. With Christ, in Christ, baptized into Christ. Dying with Him and rising with Him. A resurrected people. It's mind-blowing. It's life-changing. It's incredible. by your Holy Spirit, help us to live this resurrection life. To live out our baptism so that everyone can see 
that we are in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.